Okay, so recall one of your favorite stories. All of us have a story maybe that has changed our lives. It might be one that we heard somewhere along the way. It might be one that we saw on a movie screen or television. Kevin Stump remembers a Twilight Zone episode from 1960 in which an American on a walking tour through Central Europe gets caught in a raging storm. He's staggering through the, <clears throat> excuse me, through the blinding rain, and he sees an imposing medieval castle. It turns out that it's a hermitage for a brotherhood of monks, and reluctantly they take him in. Later that night, the American discovers a cell with a man locked inside. An ancient wooden staff bolts the door. The prisoner claims that he is being held captive by the insane head monk, Brother Jerome, and he pleads for the American to release him. Well, the prisoner's kind face and gentle voice win over the American, and so he confronts Brother Jerome, the quote-unquote insane head monk. And Brother Jerome declares that the prisoner is, in fact, Satan, And the wooden bolt on the door is the staff of truth, the one barrier he cannot pass. Well, this convinces the the American that Jerome is indeed mad. And as soon as he gets the chance, he releases the prisoner, who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a puff of smoke. The stunned American is horrified by what he's done, Jerome responds to him sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night and whom you have turned loose upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American replies. I saw him and I didn't recognize him. To which Jerome responds, That is man's weakness and Satan's strength. Commonly, stories have three sections, three chapters that may be short or long. In chapter one, authors introduce the characters and set the stage. In chapter two, they introduce a problem or conflict. And in the third and final chapter, they have the protagonist resolve that conflict. Some stories, though, like this one from Twilight Zone, leave us wondering what happens next. So let's apply this three-chapter schema to 3,000 years of Christian history, year by year. Just kidding. (laughs) In chapter 1, the authors of the Hebrew Testament set the stage and introduce many characters. God is the protagonist and, with the help of people, saves a certain group of them from slavery in Egypt and various other difficulties. And still, at the end of chapter 1, this group of people faces a different kind of bondage and awaits a Messiah, the one anointed by God to save them again. Okay, see, that was just a thousand years right there, chapter 1. Chapter 2, this Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, appears in the world in a miraculous and humble way. Most do not realize that Jesus is this Messiah. 
And a new conflict is created when so much of what this Jesus says and does goes against the status quo. We, the readers, see the suspense building, and we wonder what will happen. There's a certain verse in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And if we know our Hebrew history, we know that Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets. And so we wonder what will happen to Jesus. But we don't have to wonder long. They will kill him too. Like in the movie Psycho, Janet Lee was the big name on the, on the placard as one of the stars of the film, and Hitchcock throws us all for a loop when he chooses to kill off the star early on, and everyone is shocked. Well, it's similar here to the gospel that this hero, this one who seems to be saying everything that's right, he's the one that gets killed. And his death then appears to be the climax of this tragedy, this tragic story. But in fact, we're surprised again with God's mystery and miracle called resurrection. And that is a satisfying ending itself, and chapter 2 hasn't even ended yet. But wait, there's more. Today, we're on the first page of chapter 3. In contrast to evil being released from the cell in the twilight zone, something wonderful is released at the hinge of chapters 2 and 3. Jesus of Nazareth fulfills his role as the Christ leaving this world and miraculously and mysteriously rising up to be at the right hand of God the Father. This past week, one of you said to a few of us that two of your friends had died that week and their funerals were at exactly the same time. Of course, you could go only to one. That's a limitation of our physical body. But Jesus no longer has that limitation now. As the Christ, he is joining with the Spirit of God. He is no longer limited to one place in that body. He is accessible to all places. His Spirit is everywhere at once, ready to empower us whenever we need strength and courage and guidance. And we'll see this in full effect next Sunday when we celebrate Pentecost, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for which the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem. But we're not there yet. We're waiting. We know Luke as the author of one of the Gospels, but he also is credited with the sequel to that Gospel, the book of Acts. And both the end of chapter 24 of Luke and the first chapter of Acts are this hinge that describe the ascension. And they describe Jesus telling the disciples to wait, to wait in Jerusalem until that spirit comes. He says to them in Luke, you are witnesses of these things, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And he says, see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here 
in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Wait. In a theater after intermission, the man at the end of the row was watching and waiting for the return of two people from the same row. Finally, he saw them, and the man returning spoke first, Did I step on your toes when I went out? You certainly did, answered the man grimly, waiting for an apology. And the man turned to his wife and exclaimed, Here, honey, this is our row. (laughs) Waiting. Waiting is a part of our lives. Sometimes we wait for things that will never happen, like an apology. Sometimes we wait to do the things we would like to do, like take that big trip or that art or dance class or that friend out to lunch. We wait for any number of reasons and any number of false beliefs. We don't have the skills. We don't have the support. We don't have the intelligence. We'll have time for that later. The story of the Ascension has two focuses, two foci. Jesus is the first. It's his departure to become one again with his Father. And while the image of someone being levitated into the clouds is a little difficult for scientific brains, we recognize the melding of Father and Son, the first and second persons of the Trinity. Believing that Christ and the Father are one is a significant part of our Christian tradition. But the second part of this is who's left standing on the ground? Who's left in the story? The disciples. Left standing. And they're watching. They're watching Jesus leave. And I think a significant aspect of this passage is that these two men in white that appear takes our minds back to the story of the transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain with Jesus in white, and here again we have these two men in white, and they say, why do you stand looking up at the sky? And what he's saying is, take your eyes down and look around. That's where your eyes need to go, and that's where then you need to go. We watch Jesus depart, but that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the next chapter. The Holy Spirit, the one for whom the disciples will wait, will help them be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. Now, localizing that for Calvary... Jesus Christ might say to us, with the Holy Spirit, you are my witnesses in the Roanoke Valley, in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic States, and to the ends of the earth. Now again, we can be only in one place at a time, but wherever we are is where Jesus needs us. And so we celebrate people who are in Jerusalem, 
who are working in Roanoke for Jesus, like the Evelyn Townsend Mission Circle who fed the people at Ronald McDonald House on Monday night, like those of you who are involved in tutoring at Hurt Park Elementary and Baptist Friendship House. This is our Jerusalem. And some can and want to go farther afield, like our members who have spent several days in far southwest Virginia helping with construction or with children in the schools. Our Samaria, a little bit farther out, may be Standing Rock Reservation in the Dakotas. Or, for some, that's more like the ends of the earth. We also have had mission teams on the island of Antigua, in New York City, and in the nation of Belize. We are all Christ's witnesses, wherever we are. And I think he has created us with an incredible diversity so that some prefer the local missions and the activities that they can do around here and the relationships that they can build that can go on week after week or month after month. And some are better at short-term mission projects where they can go and construct something and see that there's something that they've done with their hands and know that they have helped people to have a church or a pastor to have a home or those sorts of things. And then there are things farther afield where others are called to go into to the ends of the earth, those distant places where maybe only a few have the courage and strength and willingness and intelligence to go. I've told this story to some of you, but I spent a couple of years in West Africa in my 20s, and I had a supervisor at the Baptist Audiovisual Center whose French was absolutely terrible. She was from Grove Hill, Alabama, and she definitely had that southern accent to her French. But the, one of the things that she told me that just stuck with me so much is, is she said, I know my French is terrible. I know I am not the best person for this job. But I said yes. And that was powerful to me. We find so many excuses to not do the things that God call us, calls us to do. But when we do, lives are changed for Christ. Lives are transformed. They come up when they've been down. They even out when they've been on a roller coaster. Christ transforms lives through us. Through us. I'm going to ask you to turn your program again, your bulletin. Underneath the section that says sermon is a poem or prayer attributed to St. Teresa of Avila. And I'd like for us to read it together. One, two, three, go. God of love, help us to remember that Christ has no body now on earth but ours, no hands but ours, no feet but ours. Ours are the eyes to see the needs of the world, Ours are the hands with which to bless everyone now. Ours are the feet 
with which he is to go about doing good. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? At our Wednesday prayer group, Tony Mason read from the daily devotional called Reflections. And that day's devotional quoted Marianne Williamson, who said, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? But she says, actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. We all are meant to shine as children do. And so you can think about the faces that you saw up here. The children shining forth with the love of God that they have learned from you and learned through Jesus Christ. Carry that image with you through this week and perhaps this phrase, we are all meant to shine as children do. We are all children of God, black and white, little and big. We are all children of the Lord. Let us thank God and invite God's presence and guidance too. May we pray. Holy One, we are so grateful for who you are and what you have done in our lives. We are thankful for those who have shined for us and led us to your light. Lord, as we may be scared and excited at the same time about having our training wheels taken off, Give us strength and courage and joy at the tasks to which you have called us. We pray in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.